We're, we're in Romans 12 at the moment in these evening services, so we're going to read now. Um, we're going to be looking this evening at a single verse, Romans 12:11, but we uh, want to give that some context, so we'll read in from the start of the chapter. If you're following in the church Bible, it's page 947, Romans 12, and we'll read the first 13 verses. Let's read in here together God's Word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be uh, focusing right in on a single verse this evening, Romans 12, 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I don't really know if it's true, but it's claimed that there's an old village graveyard somewhere in England where one of the gravestones has the epitaph, he was vicar of this parish for 40 years without ever showing the least sign of enthusiasm. You may have known vicars like that. Um, actually, it was intended as a compliment because historically the word enthusiasm was used to mock those who were just thought to be getting a bit carried away with religion. It was applied uh, at times to the Methodists in the 18th century, for example, who seemed to have this idea that the Christian faith was a dynamic, personal, even emotional thing. They were frenzied fanatics. They were enthusiasts. I have a sneaking suspicion that we might come into the same category. But obviously, this particular vicar uh, managed to maintain a somber dignity, which didn't give the least sign that the gospel might be worth rejoicing in. That word enthusiasm comes from, comes from Greek, entheos, means in God. The enthusiastic person 
is someone who is clearly set alight by a divine spark of power or motive or genius. To be enthusiastic in this original sense is to be, uh, is to be inspired or possessed by God. And uh, while that, that's not how we use the word in English anymore, I want to draw on that word derivation tonight, because the danger in a verse like this, especially as we, we, we take it and look at it just in, on its own, the danger is that we read it just as some kind of demand that we pull our spiritual socks up and do better. Even worse, we could read it simply as a command to do more. Don't be lazy. You're not busy enough. You should be running around a bit more frantically than you have been. And, and, and instead of being motivated to rightful zeal in the service of God, uh, we're all just crushed under a weight of guilt. And I don't think any of us need that. So tonight we're considering the nature and nurture of godly enthusiasm. What is the sloth that Paul condemns? What is the zeal that he commends? And what is the service that he commands? These three um, simple things. Uh, the good news is that this isn't about us geeing ourselves up into some kind of forced but false zeal. It's about enthusiasm in the proper sense, the presence of God with us and in us to drive us in our Christian life and service. Because here, as much as anywhere, we need to be remembering, I've said this a number of times, and I'm going to keep on saying it because we need to remember it all the time that the whole of Romans 12 is built on verses 1 and 2. Every command that Paul gives he urges on us by the mercies of God, which of course is his way of just kind of incorporating into Romans 12 the whole of Romans 1 to 11. Everything in, that he's spoken about there we're to have in mind as we consider these commands of chapter 12. And I think it's time that we pause just for a moment to remind ourselves of some of these mercies. Don't worry about um, following what I'm about to do. We're, we're going to do a kind of flyby, just flying low over Romans 1 to 11. We're going to race past it um, and just remind ourselves of where Paul has taken his readers in these chapters. So, so don't worry about following the references. I just want to build up a cumulative picture of the kind of things that God has done for his people uh, as Paul has set them out. So to a people mired in sin and helpless in their unrighteousness, chapters 1 and 2, the righteousness of God has been revealed, chapter 3, given by grace alone as a free gift at the astonishing cost of the self-sacrifice of the Son of God. This means that salvation is received simply by trusting in Him and nothing more, on the basis of which God counts our sin as Christ's and Christ's righteousness as ours, chapter 4. Therefore, chapter 5, all the blessings of the gospel come to us who have done nothing to deserve them, because although death came in Adam, life has come to us in Christ, and, and He uh, brings to us faith and grace and joy and hope and glory and endurance. All of this becomes ours because of what Christ has done and because of nothing else. What we get in the gospel, as Calvin loved to put it, is Christ clothed in His gospel. All these great blessings, chapter 5. The result, chapter 6 and 7, is that we're not only forgiven for past sin, but that the power of sin over us is broken forever. And we can become now obedient from the heart to the God who saved us. We are now 
slaves to righteousness where once we were slaves to sin. Therefore, we are not condemned, chapter 8, and we now leave behind the life of the flesh and pursue the life of the Spirit. This Spirit dwells in us. This Spirit assures us that we are sons and daughters of the living God. This Spirit intercedes for us with words, with, with groanings too deep for words as we live amidst the pain of a broken world. This Spirit gives us hope through all things in life and for all eternity to come. All of that in, in Romans 8, just one of the greatest chapters and in, in the greatest chapter ever written anywhere, isn't it? Uh, Romans 8. And, and, and all of this, chapters 9 to 11, is by the sovereign grace of God through the unfolding of His mysterious but merciful purposes in human history and in our lives, by which He has brought this gospel to us by means of the preaching of His Word, and so made us a part of His people by sovereign, divine initiative and free grace alone. Therefore, by the mercies of God, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. It, it changes the, the tone of it, doesn't it? It puts something behind it. It fuels the command when you surround it with the mercies of God, which make this command just reasonable service, the only, the only possible response uh, to all that God has done for us. You can do this because you've been redeemed because you've been liberated from sin. You don't need to obey sin any longer. You've been enslaved to righteousness. righteousness. So now when, when righteousness comes calling, you respond. That's what you do when you're a slave. You hear the voice of the master and you, you, you go. Righteousness calls, you respond to it because you've been indwelt by a spirit of liberty and power. God has changed everything and made the, the life of Romans 12 possible where it could never have been possible before. If you lose sight of all of that, all you have is a command that you can't obey. All you have is weak people being urged to be strong. And instead, Paul says to us, God has made you strong, now be strong in Him. And all through this passage, we'll see this even more starkly next week. The things that God commands of us are all things that God gives to us through the gospel. It was Augustine's prayer, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Ask, ask anything of me, just, just give it to me as well. That's what God does. So, with all of that in place, uh, let me then ask you a question. What is your plan for Christian growth? What is your plan for Christian growth? What steps have you taken and what plans have you put in place to ensure that your Christian maturity is greater next year than it is this year? How are you preparing to serve God and the gospel more effectively in the future? And when I, when I ask questions like that, are they questions that make sense to you or just questions that sound a bit odd? Set them alongside another set of questions that people might ask themselves. Uh, what's your plan for career advancement? What steps have you taken? What plans have you put in place to ensure that your career is more successful next year than it is this year? How are you preparing to earn more money in the coming months and years? My point is this. 
there are plenty of Christian people for whom that second set of questions is completely normal and natural, but that first set of questions have never entered our minds. It would never have occurred to us to plan deliberately in our spiritual lives. It just doesn't register to be deliberate about our discipleship. You'll maybe know the proverb, Proverb 6, 6, go to the ant. Go to the ant, O sluggard. We're to learn from the industry, and actually, if you read the passage, from the forward planning of the ant who stores up food for the future. Well, Paul expands it here. Go to the ant and the sloth. If we're going to take positive examples from the, the ant and its industry, we're, we can also take negative lessons from the sloth and its sluggishness. Um, I am aware, in case you're wondering, in case anybody is a, is a bit of a natural history enthusiast, I am aware that Paul would never have seen a sloth in his life, and even if he had, it wouldn't have been called a sloth. It works the other way around. The word slothful existed first. It's not that you get called slothful because you're a bit like a sloth. It's that a sloth gets called a sloth because it's slothful. That's the, the, the way that it worked. Uh, nonetheless, let's just use that mental image to illustrate a bit what, what Paul is talking about here when he tells us not to be slothful in zeal or in diligence. Just, you just, you've all seen it, haven't you? You've seen the, the, the clips on TV or something of a sloth. It's just the movements, I just picture the movements of a sloth. These kind of glacial movements, you know? The slowest of all mammals. These things sleep, apparently I read up, these things sleep for 20 hours a day and uh, move so slowly that algae grows on them. That's the speed of a sloth. Don't be like this in your Christian life, says Paul. Don't be slothful in zeal. I said earlier that I don't want this to degenerate into a guilt trip, and I meant it. But nonetheless, Paul is raising the possibility here of people simply having a kind of sluggish inertia in the exercise of their faith. I think that um, if you if you read a bit of history, you come to recognize that different eras and different cultures have tendencies in certain directions. And these are all vast generalizations, yes, but nonetheless uh, real things. And I think one of the particular temptations and tendencies that afflicts 21st century Western Christianity is a degree of laziness and passivity. People will go to immense lengths to further their career. They will spend years studying, honing their craft, keeping up to date with developments, continuing professional development, all the rest of it. People will, will labor for long, long hours to build up a business or a, or a career. And many of these same people will wander along in their spiritual lives without giving it a moment's thought. No, no thought about how to deepen their maturity, how to develop Christian character, how to grow in biblical knowledge, how to serve carefully and witness prayerfully. Just that, that stuff is supposed to just happen somehow. The very idea that you might do it has simply never occurred to many. The, the author, Jerry Bridges, um, he's written of uh, it's a striking expression, a challenging expression that he uses. He speaks about cruise control Christianity. Um, I have cruise control in my car. So I, I like it. I use it. Um, get up to a certain speed on the motorway. You press the button. You just need to steer. 
Soon we won't have to do that either, will we? We can all go to sleep. Cars will drive themselves. But, but for now, you just need to steer. And it's just one less thing to think about. You can just relax a bit. You can switch off a little bit, you know? However, says Jerry Bridges, we tend to obey God in the same way. We press the accelerator pedal of obedience until we've brought our behavior up to a certain level or speed. The level of obedience is most often determined by the behavior standard of other Christians around us. We don't want to lag behind them because we want to be as spiritual as they are. At the same time, we're not eager to forge ahead of them because we wouldn't want to be different. We just want to blend comfortably in with the level of obedience of those around us. Once we've arrived at this comfortable level of obedience, we push the cruise control button in our hearts and relax. Our particular Christian culture then takes over and keeps us going at the accepted level of conduct. We don't have to watch the speed limit signs in God's Word, and we certainly don't have to experience the fatigue that comes with seeking to obey Him with all our heart, soul, and mind. Ouch. But... But isn't there a degree of truth in that, if we're honest? We're meant to be presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, our minds renewed so that we're equipped to please God in everything. And for so many of us, we settle for pitching up at church week by week, putting something in the offering, and not living openly immoral lives. Our spiritual maturity stagnates. Our Bible knowledge is not growing from one year to the next. Our usefulness to God is not increasing. We can't serve the church as we ought. And, and always what happens here is that the, the whole body suffers because, well, well, because one part of it is acting like a sloth. Just picture that. You get up tomorrow morning and you, you go to do whatever, you know, you go to work or um, look after the kids or whatever you do on a Monday morning, but your, your left leg has decided to do an impression of a sloth for the day. You're not going to get very much done, are you? This passage has been so much about working together in the body. Why this spiritual malaise? Because we've we've just grown dull and sluggish in our spiritual lives instead of alive and alert. We've not been earnest and vigorous in our Christian living. And so, Paul says, don't be slothful. Just think of what it does. Um, I'm not going to develop this, but just, just let me mention three areas. Consider what it does to your own personal growth in knowledge and godliness. Slothfulness, a lack of deliberateness in the Christian life, it just, it it stunts it. Consider what it does to your usefulness in serving God and His people. It stifles it. Consider what it does to your effectiveness in witness. Sang it a few minutes ago, facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. And then later on, from cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake, forth on thine errand send us to labor for thy sake. Don't be slothful in zeal, says Paul. And and then in place of this lethargy and inertia, be fervent in spirit. That's the the positive thing, right? There's the picture of what we're not to be like. Now, the positive thing, be fervent in spirit. That word fervent, if we start with that, the basic image is of something boiling, something bubbling up. That's the the picture. If you imagine a a pot on the stove, and it's just bubbling away continually, that's that's the, the picture that Paul is painting here. That's what fervent means. 
So if we can borrow from the cookbooks, Paul's instruction here is maintain heat and simmer indefinitely. That's, that's what our spiritual life is to be like. It's just to be constantly simmering away. How is this to happen? Well, what he says is be fervent in spirit. Most English translations, if you look at your Bible there, probably it will say something like that. It will say be fervent in spirit, and then it will have a little footnote Um, And it will let you know in the footnote that that could equally be translated, be fervent in the Spirit, with a capital S. Uh, Be fervent in the Holy Spirit. The text can be read um, either way completely validly. I always tend to assume if if a text is a little bit ambiguous that Paul knew that when he wrote it and was obviously happy for it to, to sit there a little bit ambiguous to make us think. So it may be that part of this, and Lloyd Jones, for example, was very insistent on this, Part of this is that there's a straightforward command to Christians to arouse themselves. Just come on. Get, get on with this. Give, wake up. You know, this, the, the slothful Christian is like a teenager on a Saturday morning, just needs a bit of a, come on, a bit of a kick. So there's an element of that, but Lloyd-Jones would also have been the first to insist that that in itself is far from enough, because this is, if, if that's all we've got, no, if all we've got is geeing ourselves up, come on, let's, let's do a bit more. Let's do a bit better. Let's go a bit faster. This is not good. We need something to maintain the heat and simmer indefinitely. So, so the majority of the commentators today place the main emphasis on the alternative translation, be fervent in the Spirit, the source of that continual heat that, that keeps us bubbling away is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That is the the ordinary day-by-day work of the Spirit as He thrills us with Christ and fills us with Christ and equips us for the service of Christ and empowers us with all that we need. He's the Spirit of power, and and He's the only possible source of this kind of constant energy that we need to, to serve God and to keep on serving God every day for the rest of our lives. You've, you've probably got um, if you're like us, you've probably got, well, you've got various things in your kitchen, but there are two things in particular in your kitchen. You've got a kettle, and probably somewhere in the corner in the kitchen, you've got a boiler. Okay? What's the difference between a kettle and a boiler? A kettle bubbles up and boils every now and then. Our boiler at home, people take different views on energy efficiency and how, this, how, you, how best you do this, but our boiler at home, the hot water is on all the time, never goes off. Energy is always being applied to it to keep it, keep it hot, always hot. Many Christians are, are, are more like the kettle than the boiler. Something comes along, excites them, and, the, and they bubble up, and everything's wonderful, and then, it, and then it fades away until the next thing comes along and it bubbles up. Yeah, we're all going to have emotional highs and lows. We're, that's natural. But what we need is an energy source that's not going to stop. What we need is a power that's going to continually flow into our lives and keep us simmering away. It's not about getting hyped up. It's just about the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's the difference between humanly generated passion that comes and goes and godly enthusiasm. Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit really better keep on being filled with the Spirit. Keep looking to, to, to Him. 2 Timothy 
1, uh, Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power. Turn up the gas, put fuel on the fire. So, so whatever your natural level of energy, and that's going to vary hugely between us all, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you have the spirit of power indwelling you. And in Him, you can be fervent in your service for God. Let me please hear me when I say again, this is not about making yourself ever more frantically busy with Christian meetings and stuff, feeling guilty whenever anything happens, you know, anything Christian happens within a 50-mile radius that you don't go to. You know, that's, that's not what this is about. God doesn't ask you to do more than you're physically able to do. He doesn't ask you to do what will actually damage your spiritual life. He doesn't ask you to do what will damage your family's spiritual life. The point of this is that whatever God places before us as our part in His service, do it with everything you've got, and do it looking to Him to help you. Sometimes you'll collapse exhausted at the end of it. This is not to say, you know, it's just easy. You know, we float along and the Holy Spirit does everything. No, no. The images the Bible uses for the, for the Christian life are things like a soldier fighting in war, an athlete straining for the prize, a farmer laboring in the field. At the end of the day, you're exhausted, you collapse. But God's Spirit has applied the heat to keep you fervent. So let's just return to those three areas of Christian life that I mentioned earlier. Number one, how do we grow personally in knowledge and godliness? Well, that's about the ordinary disciplines of the Christian life, isn't it? That book by Jerry Bridges is called The Disciplines of Grace. It's all about taking hold of, taking advantage of all that God has given to us, listening to Him, taking seriously what He said to us about how we're going to grow. And if we think we don't need the work of the Spirit to sustain these ordinary disciplines of prayer and Bible reading, then we probably haven't been Christians very long. You know that's hard, don't you? hard. I mentioned earlier the sobering contrast between how we sometimes approach different areas of our lives, and it's one that was developed by um, Robert Candlish, wrote a commentary on Romans 12 over 150 years ago, and he was talking about this then. He, said, he says, would that you brought to bear upon this work of your soul's growth and grace the same systematic industry and attention that you would devote to the business of a secular calling on which your welfare in this world depended. You would not then… Here's, this kind of stuff is an antidote to the kind of everything was wonderful in the past, and Christians were all amazing in the past. You know, he says, you would not then, as regards the best interests of your soul, live so loosely, so much at random, and as it were, by chance, as you are now apt to do. You would not be so ready as you are now to dispense with stated times and fixed rules and methods of devotion. You would task yourself and have your self-imposed and self-enforced discipline of study, meditation, and prayer. You would lay down the plan of your spiritual life and suffer no interruptions to interfere with it. You would make conscience of your daily walk with God in faith and love being at least as systematically and strenuously attended to as your daily work in the world. Christian growth doesn't just happen. We need to plan for it. We need to discipline ourselves to use the means that God gives us to nurture faith. And, and the point of it is this. 
through these regular day-by-day, week-by-week spiritual disciplines, the Spirit maintains the heat. He, he fuels our Christian life and our growth in grace. That's how we grow personally in knowledge and godliness. Number two, how do we make ourselves useful in serving God and His people? Yes, we rouse ourselves. We can say, come on, um, do your best, be deliberate. But, but we also seek His help continually. It's as we grow in gifts and graces and godliness that we'll be able to be a blessing to those around us. We need the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, making us less selfish, more giving. Number three, how do we become more effective in our witness? The Spirit stirs us up to this and, and fuels the flame. We're, we're so often complacent about this, aren't we? Think of 1839. Think of um, uh, revival in Kilsyth and Dundee, who were the men that God used, men like William Chalmers Burns. Burns used to walk up to fellow ministers. He'd just walk up to someone, put his hand on your shoulder, and he would say, brother, we must hurry. We must hurry. Men and women are on their way to hell. They're dying. They're hellbound. We must hurry. Or, or think of McChain, who, you know, McChain away, and, and, and William Chalmers Burns came to Dundee and preached, and revival breaks out. McChain hears about it. He rushes back to join in with the, the preaching and with the revival. This is uh, McChain, that one of his, uh, a, a servant girl that knew him, once described him as Dianthe folk converted. He's just dying for this. It's what he lives for, to see people come to Christ. There was just in in these men a spirit-given fervor, stirred up by the knowledge of the gospel and love for Christ and love for lost sinners, with none to heed their crying for life and love and light. Unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night. And so, we who rejoice to know Thee Renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. And finally, briefly, be a servant of the Lord. Serve the Lord. It's a funny thing to add, isn't it? And unless, of course, Christians were prone to forget the whole point of what they're doing and just get caught up in the activity of it all then you could understand why Paul might make a point of saying, just remember, in everything that you're doing, all this fervency, all this zeal, make sure that you are serving the Lord. Make sure that this is zeal according to knowledge. As you use your gifts in the service of the body, as you shrink away from evil and and cling to good, as you love genuinely and outdo one another in showing honor, remember that all of it is first and foremost service to Christ Himself. Because where we forget that, all sorts of things go wrong. All sorts of stuff goes wrong. I told the story before of Roy Regals, the American baseball player, the American football player, rather. And you can look this up. You go home and look up. Go onto YouTube and put in Roy Regals. I'm involved in an American football game, championship game. Um, the ball comes to him at one point, and he picks it up, and he runs, and he goes on this spectacular 
utterly spectacular run. He runs the whole length of the pitch. And he runs down and he runs into the touchdown zone. In fact, no, he, he's, he, he, gets, he gets a few yards short of the touchdown zone. And one of his own teammates finally catches him and pulls him back by the shoulder to tell him that he's running the wrong way. And they lose the game and they lose the championship. And the poor man was known for the rest of his life as Roy Wrongway Regals. But it's always struck me as he went full tilt down that pitch, the picture of zeal and fervency and energy all going the wrong way. Serve the Lord. Because if you forget that, you're going to serve yourself. And if you serve yourself with zeal and with fervency, this is disaster. Frighteningly easy. Frighteningly easy to forget that we are serving the Lord. I've mentioned before that in our own denomination, the IPC, section one of the Book of Church Order is called the Overriding Objective. It begins, these are the opening words of the Book of Church Order. The overriding objective of the church is to please and glorify the triune God through His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It just says everything else that we do is subject to that. Everything in this book of church order is intended to serve that end. The overriding objective of the church is to please and glorify the triune God through His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's because of Him that we must be zealous in service because half-hearted worship and obedience is not honoring to Him. You know, the uh, picture of the general, you know, stirring up the troops and giving them this kind of rousing call to action and telling them what's at stake in this war and the freedoms that have been won for them in the past and, and all that could be lost and, and, and come and fight and, and, and do, all, do your all and give everything for the cause and you stand there in the ranks and you go, well, you know, suppose, suppose we should. We did sign up. That's not honoring. Not honoring to queen and country, is it? Our attitude is to be that of the psalmist. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? What can I do? How can I serve Him? Serve the Lord. And so putting it all together then, the picture that emerges is that of the diligent, fervent servant. And we shouldn't be surprised, should we, to find. It's what we find in, in all of these um, uh, calls to Christian living. We shouldn't be surprised to find that ultimately it's, it's a description that best fits Christ Himself. He's not slothful. He's diligent in all that He's called to do. He's always about His Father's business. He's fervent in His work and worship, Spirit-empowered to the greatest degree, and He lives to serve the Lord. His food is to do the will of Him who sent Him. He's the one described by Isaiah as the servant of the Lord. And, and yet, you know, I want, to, I want to finish with this because there is such a danger in this. I want to finish with this, that one of the things that I find striking about Christ reading the gospel accounts is his unhurriedness. I know what Burns meant when he said we must hurry. 
and, and he's right. But we need to temper that by recognizing the calmness and control of Christ, because one of the things that plagues us as Christians sometimes is just sheer busyness, just running around frantically doing this and that and the other and going to 9,000 meetings every year, and, and just all this activity. And, and you know, she just has no time to stop. We're, we're with Martha in the kitchen because we all secretly sympathize with Martha, don't we, in that story? Bustling away in the kitchen, getting everything ready, doing what needs to be done, and there's Mary sitting in front of Jesus. What does Jesus say? Martha, you're worried and anxious about many things, but one thing is needful. Mary has chosen what is better. And that's why we started tonight with that lovely hymn, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, just calling our attention to Jesus on His knees, in the silence, on a hillside, His Sabbath rest by Galilee, His communion with God. I don't mean, I don't mean to paint a picture of a kind of otherworldly Jesus that floats through life. Um, he's a real man, and he, and he sweated like the rest of us, and, and he got exhausted like the rest of us but he never gives the impression of chasing his tail, does he? Each day there is work that the Father has put before me, and each day I will do that day's work. So yes, we need a rightful sense of urgency in ministry and mission, but we also need a recognition of the sovereignty of God and the timescales of God and the part that God has given me to play and the fact that I'm a human and he knows it and there are limitations on what I can do in a day. And so I say all of this just because I don't want you going away tonight exhausted with what you're already doing, um, but now resolving to run a bit faster and do a bit more. Because that's not the point. The point is to look soberly at what God has given us to do, the responsibilities that He has placed before us, the people that He has placed around us, the calling that we have as Christian husbands and wives, parents, bosses, employees, neighbors, friends, calling that we have in the circles where God has placed us to serve Him, the opportunities He's given us, so we consider these things and contemplate honestly these questions of Scripture. Am I slothful in zeal? Have I slipped into this? Am I fervent in the Spirit? Am I serving the Lord? Don't reach for what God hasn't asked you to do. But whatever God has asked you to do, do it with all your heart. Let's pray. God, our Father, we are prone, all of us, to, to go in different directions, and some of us are prone to be activists. We want to run around, we want to do this and that and the other, and it makes us feel as if we're accomplishing something. Father, we pray that you would help us, help us to, to understand what it is to have that rightful sense of urgency we must hurry. 
Lives are at stake. Eternities are at stake. We must hurry. And yet, at the same time, the the unhurriedness of our Lord and His calmness in the face of all the need of the world. His example in, in doing day by day what you set before Him. Father, help us, help us, we pray, to think about these things well so that we don't just, we don't go crazy just thinking about all that we haven't done and we don't get paralyzed so that we end up not really able to do anything because we don't know what to do, but, but instead we give ourselves just wholeheartedly into whatever you've called us to do today. Help us to think well about these things and give us wisdom in what you call us to do. For those of us who are, who, are, who are doing far too much, we pray that you would give us the humility to acknowledge that we are not God, we are not sovereign, and the world does not depend upon us. For those of us who are not doing enough, just stir us, we pray. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us a desire to do all that you have set before us. But Lord, may this be your work. May it be done in your way. May it all be service for you. Save us from going off and doing our own thing and building our own empire. May we, may we do all for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God. Help us in these things, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.